is Christian Questions. Mahatma Gandhi once said, An error does not become truth by reason of multiplied propagation, nor does truth become error because nobody sees it. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christian Questions Talk Radio with a Purpose with Jonathan and Rick. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise to never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Rick, that perspective is based on godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, all in a politically free zone. Jonathan, the best part is this. We talk and you listen, and then you talk and we listen. You can also contact us at our website, ChristianQuestions.com. I'm Rick. And I'm Jonathan. And we're glad that you've chosen to spend some time with us on this fine Sunday morning. And Jonathan, what is the topic today? Well, Rick, our question is, are most people really hellbound? Part 1. And our theme text is found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Jonathan, Christianity is a faith that claims to see the mind of God through his written word. It claims to represent a God of love and compassion, yet a God of justice and consequence as well. All Christians are unified in the belief that the true followers of Christ will be rewarded with immortal life in heaven, and yet Christianity is amazingly fractured in its belief about what happens to everyone else, which constitutes the vast majority of all mankind. Do unbelievers suffer in merciless agony for all of eternity in the fires of hell? Do unbelievers experience the fire of hell as a purifying fire that brings them to Christ? Or do unbelievers simply experience utter destruction and cease to exist upon final proof of incorrigibility? Folks, stay with us this morning as we seek biblical truth on this matter, and this is a tough one. Yes, it is, Rick. Um, okay, uh, <laughs> uh, one second, we, we're supposed to have a, uh, a guest calling in, um, Trish, tell him on the email that I sent him, it has all the call-in numbers. Okay, we're going to have to um, move forward on this. We have a, a guest that's scheduled to um, uh, join us this morning, uh, Kevin Miller, uh, he's not on the line yet, so we're going to have to get started without him here. And um, he did a uh, documentary called Hellbound, and it Hellbound with a question mark. Uh, he produced it this past year, and it asked a lot of very, very, very pointed questions about the whole concept of hell and how it works and how the whole uh, situation is supposed to be um, developing in terms of scriptural reasoning and understanding. So as we begin to develop this, Jonathan, I want to start by, before we get into the, the documentary, and we're, we're still trying to get uh, Kevin on the line here, before we get into the documentary, um, want to put this in perspective from a scriptural standpoint. So th- there's two premises that we want to lay out uh, as we begin this. Uh, and so let's go to scriptures uh, first. Second Timothy three fourteen to, to uh, 17. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures 
is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, so the first thing is that you have the scripture, and we talked about the scripture not too long ago uh, in in in, um, in our program. Should you not be a Christian? That's right. But all right. scripture is inspired by God. Yes. So what, that's the first premise we want to make as we look at this the, the concept of hell, because there's so many different perspectives on it. All scripture is inspired by God. Yes. And. We as Christians, we want to take that as the core value of our belief. That's right. We build off of the Word of God. Right. Okay. So that's the first thing. Uh, the Scriptures do hold that we need to know uh, all the things that we need to know regarding life and death. And the fact that the Scripture is inspired indicates that it's all in harmony. Yes. It has so to be. If it's that's where perfect. we start with this whole, whole premise and whole issue. Secondly... Based on that premise, that all scripture is inspired by God, we've got the words of Jesus giving us some instruction uh, in regards to how the scriptures uh, work. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's an interesting scripture because... Typically, when we read a scripture like that, you look at it and say, okay, well, this is Jesus talking about the way things work, and, and he's talking about the Old Testament, obviously. Yes. But it's interesting how he divides it into three categories. He the says, law of Moses right, is one. The law of Moses. So everything that's written about me in the law of Moses. The prophets the, of the second. The prophets. So you, you've got two big categories, not just a book or, or, or a portion, but the category of the law. Mm-hmm. The category of all the prophets. And then the Psalms. And then the Psalms, which is indicative of the category of the rest of the writings of the Old Testament. So what Jesus is really saying is that the Old Testament fits in in relation to how it all works together to be uh, a a, uh, cohesive viewpoint of Jesus. All pointing to him. Right, All talking about him. So Jesus, now this is, remember, he speaks these words to his his, uh, uh, followers after he's risen from the dead. Oh, that's right. Okay. You're right. So the risen Jesus is telling us that all three divisions of the Old Testament, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, are the foundation for what he is really truly all about. Okay? So, all of that being said, we have that as our basis. First, uh, the scriptures are inspired by God. And secondly, the Old Testament does truly lead to the New Testament. Yes, it does. And, and all of its... Um, uh, uh, teachings and what we're supposed to build on. So this program, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the Old Testament. We're actually going to do a second part of this in a few weeks. Uh, so we want to take it piece by piece so we can give, give ourselves enough time to, to put things in perspective. Now, I want to go to um, a uh, Huffington Post uh, soundbite that it was for the Hellbound documentary. Okay. Uh, because it just gives you a, a, a feel for what this documentary covered. And boy, I'll tell you, th- this... This is a documentary I think that every Christian household should have in their house I, because it asks great questions. So let's, let's go to that first. You know, every doctrine of hell presupposes a view about God. So every doctrine of hell has a theology behind it. So whenever you come across a particular view of hell, the question you ask yourself is, well, what does this view of hell tell us about God? I mean, what kind of God is it that does this? And, and, and I think what we're trying to say 
is that fundamental your, to your question about hell and all these other things is who is this God, right? right? Because if you get that wrong, everything's wrong. And so I constantly go back and ask, do I have a God who's actually less of a father than I am? So you get the sense of pointed, piercing questions yes. about the teaching. And, and folks, look, we would certainly love to get your, your input on the, on the program and get your, your sense of, of how all of this works. We know that uh, amongst the, the body of Christianity, people are going to disagree on this. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's all right. The only thing we ask is if you have an alternate point of view, you call in, you let us know, but just let's be respectful one to another because we're not about bashing somebody who doesn't see, our, see it our way. That's right. We are actually about listening and commenting and having a real live discussion like adults. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the way we like to do it. So our number is 866-985-4255, toll free 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. And the conversation continues online at ChristianQuestions.net. Check out our Facebook and CQ Rewind and our blog. Again, that's at ChristianQuestions.net. All right. So, um, again, we're working on getting uh, Kevin Miller on the line, uh, who is the producer of this incredibly done documentary. Uh, and just, it, it, it puts things in a perspective, and it's very, very respectful to uh, the several sides of the issue. Absolutely. So as we begin with that, um, let, let's actually, Jonathan, let's ju- just jump ahead a little bit and try to put this in some perspective. One of the things we've got to understand and look at is the concept of God being a God of justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is God a God of justice and a God of judgment, or is God just all love and warm and fuzzy? Okay. That's a good question. Yeah, and, and, and that's something that we're going to really have to look at very carefully, and our perspective on the matter is, look, well, let's look at Psalm 89, 13 uh, to 14, because that puts things into, into a, a good perspective here. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High, your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And see, to me, that scripture really... Um, uh, puts this whole thing into a, a perspective uh, as to what we can see in terms of the character of God. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high as your right hand. Uh, so it's giving you a sense of God is powerful. Oh, very powerful. Very yes. big, very powerful. Yep. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So powerful, righteous, and justice. So and Now just remember though, justice is the foundation of... Okay. Of his throne. It is the basis. It's the, it's the bottom line of his throne. And built on that, what does it say? It says, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So you've got to have the righteousness and the justice as the foundation uh, of, the, uh, of God's throne. And so that's the beginning of this whole thing. And I do understand, um, Fred, I think we've got uh, Kevin on the line. Uh, Kevin, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, good morning. Good to have you. Yeah, great to be here, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. And, uh, Kevin, we, we actually didn't give you your formal introduction yet. just wanted to make sure we had you on the line. But, uh, folks, Kevin Miller is an award-winning screenwriter, director, and producer who has applied his craft to numerous documentaries, feature films, and shorts. 
Recent projects include Hellbound, the project we're talking about, Drop Gun, No Saints for Sinners, Spoiled, Sex and Money, With God on Our Side, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, and After as documentaries. And in addition to his work in film, uh, Kevin has written, co-written, and edited over 40 books. He lives in Abbotsford, B.C., Canada, with his wife and four children. So, Kevin, you are at home right now? Yes, I am, down in my home office. Then, so it's like 4 o'clock in the morning, huh? Yeah, about 4.20, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for getting up so early yes, for us. Yes, that's for sure. Uh, and, uh, I probably don't look the best, but... Uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, listen, Kevin, uh, we only have just a couple minutes left in this first segment, but what provoked you to do this particular documentary, uh, Hellbound? Well, I think provoke is a good word, because really um, something... Uh, freight, that's really a word that came to me out of a book by Hans Borsma called Violence, Hospitality, and the Cross, and it was the... The idea of, of examining different views on a theological topic in order to provoke informed discussion. And that's something I was really interested in, because I had actually recently edited a book on hell for a friend of mine who appears in the film, Brad Jersak. Uh, the book is called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And what Brad introduced me to was this just really fascinating historical discussion around um, basically the idea of hell or, uh, you know, post-mortem judgment. And so looking at the, the various ways it's treated within the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then the different uh, interpretive streams throughout uh, the history of the Church. And so it's quite fascinating because you see certain views become dominant, other ones recessive, and, and vice versa. And so I thought, you know, as uh, particularly for people who are raised in an evangelical context, they're not often introduced to alternative ways of looking at things. In fact, oftentimes, alternative ways of, of looking at things are, are viewed as a threat, um, possibly uh, against their faith. And so I really wanted to make a film that made it safe to, to have this discussion and also just to make people aware of, uh, you know, the breadth of the discussion throughout the history of the Church. All right, and I like, I like the way you put it, make it safe to have the discussion, because you're right, yeah. this is the kind of topic that can be volatile in terms yeah. of, 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 of being able to talk about it. Um, our, our, actually, our time for our first segment is up here, so, so Kevin, hang on with us, and I want to get more into uh, just the idea of, of why this particular subject over other subjects and how this uh, perhaps has changed you. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest. Uh, we're so glad to have Kevin Miller with us. Our subject, Are Most People Really Hellbound? Kevin met a Christian group who claims 99% of people go to a place of torment when they die. That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest, Kevin Miller. And our subject, Are Most People Really Hellbound? If you have a thought, give us a call at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And on the line with us is uh, Kevin Miller. Uh, he's calling in from B.C., Canada, so he's uh, very early in the morning out in his, uh, his area there. And, uh, Kevin, just a little bit more on, on the documentary. Where has it been shown recently? When's it coming out on DVD and, and all of that? Sure. Uh, the documentary's coming out on DVD and uh, iTunes and all that sort of thing on May 28th. And, uh, yeah, we've, uh, I think we've played in well over 40 cities across the United States and Canada. We've been all across Canada and pretty much all across the U.S. 
uh, various theaters. Where right now we're playing um, at a few different non non traditional venues, um, college campuses. We're going to be at Mercyhurst uh, University on April twentieth. Um, a few different churches and that sort of thing. But yeah, for the for the broad general public to be able to see the film, it will be May twenty eighth. Okay, so that's good. Uh, May 28th uh, comes out on, on DVD, iTunes, and, and so forth. And again, folks, uh, I, I watched, Kevin was kind enough to send us a, a, uh, a screening of the uh, documentary, and I watched it. The first time I watched it, I was impressed. And the second time I watched it, I was really impressed. And then the third time, and I did, I watched it three times. And the third time, I watched it very critically. And uh, Kevin, I'll tell you, it just, it just opened up the questions that need to be asked in a very even-handed way. So uh, we thank you for that. Now, when you were producing this, did you get any 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 pushback? Was there was there any any uh, negative response in terms of what you were doing and how you were doing it? Yeah, definitely. There were certain groups. Um, I mean, first of all, I should say I was surprised by some of the people who responded immediately to to participating in the film. Brian McLaren, for instance, was the first person I reached out to, and he got back to me within an hour and said yes, which kind of blew me away. Um, but then I also was kind of disappointed by some of the some of the people who said no and whose schedules were suddenly very very busy and and they just didn't have time to to meet with us and and uh, those people all tended to represent one particular point of view which was you know sort of under attack by Rob Bell at the time so yeah I mean definitely there was some suspicion because if people even when we were trying to find investors for the film you know people said well. Um, only if your film lands at a certain spot will we invest in the movie. In other words, only if you've kind of figured out your conclusion ahead of time. And, and I don't think that's a good way to go into a documentary. Um, I think that a, a documentary, a good one, is is going to have just as much or way more of an effect on the filmmaker than it is on the audience because it's really an exploration of a subject that happens on film. And so you don't want to set out with a, a predetermined ending just um, because hopefully you're you're going to be changed by the process of making the film. Okay, so what was it? What was the reaction that this film had on you? It's, you said it should have more of a, an impact on the filmmaker. Well, you're the filmmaker. Did it change your perspective? Did it enhance your thinking? What, what did it do for you? Yeah, I, I think it, it just, it really led me to do a wholesale reevaluation of uh, Christianity. I mean, it's not the first time I've had to do that. I, uh, my first feature-length documentary I worked on was called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. I love was, that. Yeah, well, look at the debate between uh, intelligent design theorists and the, we'll say, the uh, evolutionary biology uh, establishment. And again, what what that is forcing you to do is go head to head with, um, you know, Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins and, and you know, P.Z. Myers, the new atheist, so to speak. And there again, you're having to really, really reevaluate everything that you believe because these guys are throwing, you know, some pretty. Um, exceptional arguments at the whole notion of religion and the idea of, uh, of there being some kind of transcendent being. So I think the same thing happened to me on, on Hellbound, where you're looking at all these different arguments and and really facing a lot of these bedrock issues of love, of justice, of freedom and truth. And so for me, it's, it's just really, uh, I guess you could say I started out the film as somebody hoping that um, that some form of universalism could be true, and I ended the film being quite convinced that that um, for God to be good, that I feel um, all people must be ultimately reconciled, not only to God, but to each other. 
All right, and we'll we'll get more into that because uh, your view is similar, and, and you and I talked about this. We have similar views. We're, we're different in, on a few things, but uh, we have similar views. So, um, folks, we're just letting you know right right here, right now, that uh, the viewpoint being expressed here on Christian Ca- Questions by Jonathan and myself and um, uh, with Kevin Miller, the film's uh, producer, is that uh, we do not believe in a hell of fire and torment. We don't believe the scriptures teach that. And one of the things we want to do as we go through discussing the film itself and the questions it asks and some of the experiences Kevin had is go through some scriptural basis and reasoning on all of that. Uh, and we're going to begin, we're going to focus really on the Old Testament as we go through our scriptural discussion on this. Now, before we go to the scriptural discussion, though, I do want to just play a, another short soundbite from, from the film. Uh, and this is, uh, and well, we're going to play it, we'll just let, let it play, and then, Kevin, we're just going to ask you to sort of describe the scene, if you will, and, and sort of describe what went through your head when you were uh, d- doing this part. So let's listen. You guys are famous for, your scientists say God hates fags. I was on your website, you have God I, hates the I world. I was just holding it. Tell me this, what happens to people God hates? They go to hell. Go to hell for eternity. What is What's that, a trick? What, you think that's a hard one? So of all the people alive today, what percentage of people are ending up in hell? 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
you know, to me, I think that's an important point right there. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Uh, and, and Kevin, with that as a backdrop, let's take a look now at some, some scriptures and, and get a sense of the Old Testament imagery regarding what happens at the end of life. And, and again, Jonathan, in the first segment, we, we talked about the fact that, okay, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. That's right. So we want to look at the Old Testament a little bit critically here. So, Jonathan, let's go to Genesis seven twenty one to 23 quickly here. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle, beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. So in that imagery, you have the flood. This is the great flood of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And you have a very specific description of what happened. They were blotted out, they perished, and they died. Right, right. It's a very simple, straightforward uh, picture. Now, just to jump to the New Testament from that for a minute before we get back to Kevin, let's go to Second Peter 3, 5 to 7, because that puts the Old Testament imagery sort of to test as to how to apply it from a New Testament perspective. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his words the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and destruction of ungodly men. So it's interesting, Jonathan, in that, in that particular scripture, it talks about the world was destroyed. Mm -hmm. But was the earth destroyed? No. No, but the world, the order of things was destroyed. That's right. That was the intention of the flood. And what this is saying is that God will destroy the order of things, but in the same way by fire. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the, the world is going to blow up into this big ball of fire and then, you know, reduce itself to a cinder. But it's talking about the destruction of the order of things because it's in the sa it says in the same way as in the Old Testament, it happens uh, in the New Testament in, in that final judgment. And, and, and Kevin, again, getting back to, to the film and to looking at the, the whole perspective, it's all about judgment, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think that this is the thing that's being debated is, is that whether you believe in eternal torment in hell or annihilationism or universalism, I think everybody is concerned that um, justice be done. The question right. is, what does justice look like? And so I think w if you really boil this debate down, it comes down to what is the nature of punishment for the sins that we commit that, that somehow we're, that go unpunished on this earth? And does it last forever? Does it ultimately destroy the person? Or is its final purpose reconciliation? I think that this is really what's being, what's really being debated ultimately. Right. And, and let me say from, from our perspective here at, at Christian Questions, our perspective is that when you look at judgment and justice in relation to the love of God, our belief is firmly that there is no sin that anyone commits in this life that they will not have to answer for. I, you know, I believe that with everything that's in me, and I think that God has set his plan in place so that is, is fulfilled. Because oftentimes when you say, okay, no, I don't believe in hellfire, the, the knee-jerk reaction to that is that, oh, then people can just do whatever they want. Yeah, I, I think that is, I, I encounter that all the time. People make that leap right away that if you question their interpretation of final things, well, then you believe in nothing. Right. <laughs> if there is 
there there was no other possible way to look at this issue. So I think that that's a very important point to make is that, again, um, I, I don't think I interviewed a single universalist who didn't believe in hell in some form. In other words, a form of post-mortem judgment where people will be called to account for everything that they've done. Um, so nobody, you know, in a sense, nobody's getting away with anything. Like We're all going to have to fess up to that and face the consequences, whatever that happens to be. Right. That, that is, to me, it seems to be the universal belief of Christians. So what we want to do then is understand, okay, is there a way to decipher through Scripture and through history, frankly, how does that happen in terms of the reality? Is there Are there real literal burning flames, or are there not? And is there another method by which this judgment and this accountability is put in place? Folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL. We are live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9, and that means we're on right now. And stay connected to Rick and I at ChristianQuestions.com, no matter the day or time. And with us is a special guest, Kevin Miller. He is the producer of the documentary Hellbound uh, that came out last year and is currently circulating uh, in, in various areas. It uh, will be available on DVD. Uh, at, at, uh, May 28th. Right, right. I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> May 28th, coming up uh, next month. So, uh, And we were able to, Kevin gave us a... Uh, a screening of the, the DVD, we were able to watch it. I watched it several times, and I really believe that there should be no Christian household without this DVD because it helps to put the important questions on the table. So to me, it is a must-have in terms of being able to have that conversation honestly. And Jonathan, we want to touch on, we won't read because we don't have time, but to touch on this Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32, 21-24 scripture. Uh, in verse 22, just read verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol, and consumes. So it's talking about this fire of God's anger, and you say, aha, it burns to the lowest part of Sheol, and so forth, and, and in some translations that word is hell. Mm-hmm. So, so you say, okay, you see, there's fire in hell. But that's not what it's saying. It's the fire of God's anger. And, I mean, we use the word fire in so many ways to, to symbolize something. If somebody playing a basketball game, and they get hot. They're on fire! Well, they're not burning, but we know what you mean. There's this, there's this focus, there's this, this, this energy. And what this is talking about is actually, this text is actually quoted in Romans 10, 19 to 21, relating to the Gentiles coming to favor. So it explains how it's supposed to be used. So as we look at this, what we're looking to do is establish the imagery of the Old Testament to understand what it says about judgment that humankind is going to go under, because the Old Testament is a book of judgment, and we want to make sure we get that all in order. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest, Kevin Miller. Our subject, Are Most People Really Hellbound? Coming up, are fear and threats God's tools And did Jesus ever use that tact? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. And we have a special guest, Kevin Miller, with us. And our, our uh, subject this morning, are most people really hellbound? If you have a thought, give us a call at 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. 
We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9. That means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And uh, Kevin Miller is the producer of the documentary Hellbound. He's produced several other documentaries over the years, uh, very accomplished uh, in this field, and did a remarkable job about putting, uh, putting a very difficult subject on the table so it can be discussed, as he put it in, in the first segment of the program, in a safe way way. So, again, Kevin, thanks uh, for, for doing that. Um, let me ask you, though, in, in terms of the, the folks that you interviewed uh, and, and so forth, those that were on the, the, the pro-Hellfire side, what was their, their, their sense toward uh, those of us, perhaps, on the other side of the issue in terms of where we might be heading? Well, I think it's, it's perhaps best raised by someone like Bob Larson, who is a uh, self-styled exorcist. He used to be a very popular uh, radio show host. And he says, that basically the idea, uh, well, he's referring in specific to universalism, but I think that um, the idea of questioning eternal torment in hell is the beginning of a slippery slope. Um, the way uh, Kevin DeYoung put it was, if you pull this thread of hell, you know, what goes with it? And um, a slippery slope argument is, you know, it can often be a fallacy, because it's basically saying that, you know, A will always lead to Z. And it's also, I think, a very fear-based tactic to prevent people from questioning the status quo. And so I think that, um, on one side, that's what's being used to corral people in, is, is the slippery slope argument. On the other side, I'll have to say that my own questioning into this issue, I wouldn't call it a slippery slope, but I would say that once you begin to question um, the notion of eternal torment, you, you are going to go eventually, I think, and do a wholesale reevaluation of the atonement, um, of so many different things. I mean, in fact, it was me really um, looking at alternate views of the atonement that led me uh, to uh, begin reconsidering uh, the idea of eternal torment and hell. So, right. yeah, you, can, you can't examine theological ideas in isolation. I think that's true, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't um, examine theological ideas for fear of where those examinations might lead. All right, and that's incidentally why we call our program Christian Questions, because the whole idea is to be able to ask questions and to put things on the table and to be able to discuss them in a friendly manner so we can find the best understanding of God's truth that we're, we're capable of finding. So uh, as we go through this, I, I want to play just another quick soundbite, and this, I, this may be the last one from, from the program, from the documentary rather, uh, from just w- one other experience that uh, Kevin went through and uh, witnessed and obviously filmed in, in terms of someone trying to uh, do their best to keep others out of hell. Let's listen to this. So, Evan, how many lies have you told in your whole life? Probably a million, billion, thousand. What do you call someone who's told numerous lies? A liar. Okay. Have you ever stolen so, something? A thief. Got it. Okay. So, what are you? A thief. A lying thief. A lying thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. It's called blasphemy. Now, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Guilty. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? So, I'm a lying, thieving adulterer. No. Blasphemer. Lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart by your omission. That's only four of the Ten Commandments. It's another six to look yep. at. Even if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, are you going to be innocent or guilty? Probably guilty. No, probably. You Guaranteed be to gu- be guilty. What's that? Guaranteed to be guilty. Guaranteed. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. So even if you die in your sins and God gives you justice, you'll end up in hell. Even think about this. This is so important. You don't know when you're going to die. 
So, Kevin, that, again, there's somebody. Now, you know, you listen to this guy, this, this preacher, and, and the first thing that comes to my mind is he is obviously very convicted by his belief. Uh, t- tell us about the experience and your reaction to it. Yes, this is a guy named Ray Comfort who goes up down to Huntington Beach every Saturday afternoon and uh, does kind of old-style um, street evangelism. And what he likes to do is, is he has a box. Uh, he's standing on a box. He gets someone else to stand up on a box, and he basically tries to convince them to become a Christian or convince them out of whatever worldview they happen to be holding to. And I'll say this about Ray Comfort is, yeah, he is a person acting out of his convictions. Um, but the other thing that I find interesting about folks like him who use hell as the leading edge of the gospel, is that they're actually um, using a method of evangelism that you actually aren't going to find in the book of Acts, for instance. In the book of Acts, um, you know, none of the biblical terms for hell actually appear there. And so this is the first picture we have of the Church going out and and sharing the gospel. And I think that um, you're going to be hard put to find anybody who uses uh, threats of eternal torment in hell to try and convince people. What instead is happening is really a call into something great, as opposed to a call, sort of a fear-based call away from away from something. And, and very, very well put. And I think that's what the focus of Christianity really is supposed to be, and was really in, initially intended to be. Obviously, uh, by the way the evangelizing happened within the scriptural context. You're listening to Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, Are Most People Really Hellbound? We have our special guest, Kevin Miller, which is an award-winning screenwriter, director, and producer. If you have a thought, give us a call, 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. We're live Sunday mornings. From 7 to 9, that means we're on right now. And our website, ChristianQuestions.com. And, folks, we want to remind you to sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition. It's available at ChristianQuestions.com. It is a free service. It will give you a summation of today's program and every program previously in print with graphics and illustrations to make it easier to follow. Again, we offer it as a free service because we want you to have all of the pieces so you can make your own conclusions by being able to look at it, be able to read it, be able to hear it, all at the same time. ChristianQuestions.com, Seeker Rewind, the full edition. Sign up now. It's free, no obligation. Let's take a few minutes here. Let's go back to scriptures. Uh, So for you, Jonathan, and you, Kevin, what we want to do is go through some more Old Testament imagery of what happens in terms of judgment at or after death, if you will. Psalms 37, 1 and 2. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So when grass withers, it dies. dies. So the idea, the imagery of that Psalm 37, 1 and 2 is wither and fade away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about torment or fire, does it? No. Okay, it doesn't give a hint toward that. Psalm 37, 9 to 10. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, the wretched man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. So at the beginning of that scripture, you say, okay, the evildoers will be cut off. You can say, aha, cut off and sent somewhere. But then it says they will be no more. No more. So again, the imagery, the Old Testament descriptions of the consequence of sin is ultimately death. Death. It's to perish. It's to, to be no more. Uh, we're going through this quickly, Jonathan, because there's not a lot of time, and we want to get Kevin on here as much as possible. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you and inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Again, being cut off. So 
we're going through and, and laying out some of this in, in, in imagery. And, and again, folks, um, there's several other things we're not going to get to this morning uh, on the air. So Seek Your Rewind, the full edition, has all of that in the bonus material. Yeah, please check it out. And um, one more one more uh, scripture that we want to at least get to right now, Jonathan. It's a little bit longer, but Psalm 69, 24 to 28. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. Okay, so here you have your sort of winding up, if you will. Wow, okay, here's yes. God's anger, here's God's indignation, and again, for those folks on the, on the burning fire side of the, the matter, you'll, you, you say, okay, here we go. Then it says, make their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourselves have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add inquiry, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, Kevin, with this particular scripture, one of the things that um, I, I, I saw in the documentary, there was, and I don't remember who was being interviewed, but talking about the love of a, of a father to their children. And uh, there, there are some that seem to show that it was selective. Here it says that everybody's in the book of life and has to be, if they're going to be evil, they're going to have to be blotted out. What was your experience in terms of uh, the, both sides of the issue in terms of where the average person stands who may not be a believer? Um, well, what I, yeah, we definitely have people in the film that come out of uh, the Reformed branch of Christianity that believe in something called, uh, well, everyone believes in the form of election, I guess, but these folks believe in in a form of predestination where some people are predestined to heaven and other people are not. And, uh, yeah, so that's one of the big debates that, that goes on within Christianity is, um, are all people, do they even have a potential to be reconciled to God, or, or do only a select few uh, people have that potential, and some people are just simply uh, just un- unable to respond um, the, the other thing I was going to mention, though, is, is the Book of Psalms is a book of poetry and hymns and that sort of thing. So what you're going to see here are all sorts of uh, poetic images. And so I would always say, you know, uh, we talked a bit earlier about how God's anger is, you know, going to reach the depths of Sheol, and, and really that reflects a tripartite view of the world, right, where you have the depths, you have the earth, and then you have the heavens. And so it's really a poetic way of expressing the totality of God's anger, that it's going to reach the very depths of the mountains and, and, and into the heavens. And so I think when we're looking at these types of uh, verses, we definitely have to keep in mind the nature of uh, the text that we're reading, because, you know, we wouldn't want to build um, uh, too careful a uh, picture of 21st century theology by looking at song lyrics. I mean, because definitely song right. lyrics do reflect the theology of the day, but, but they're meant to be interpreted poetically. Right, and 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 that really is the point. What they, what but the, what they're doing is they're giving a message, a consistent message, uh, a consistent overview. Um, just Psalm uh, chapter one. Just read verse one. The next one. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So, like chaff which the wind drives away. That is, Kevin, you're right. That's a poetic rendering. Uh, and but it, what it's saying is. It's not saying that the wicked are going to be burned eternally and tortured. Chaff is blown away and, and it's gone. It's it's it ceases to be because it's there's there's nothing left to it. Uh, the uh, Psalm sixty eight won't even read it. Psalm sixty eight one to two gives us a sense of perishing like wax melts before a fire, uh, and it just gives you 
it is a poetic rendering that helps us to understand how this whole thing works in relation to what God's justice brings. And that's really where we're going. Folks, listen, if uh, we're not... If we're not on in your area for the next hour, go to ChristianQuestions.com, click the Listen Live button and stay with us because the conversation with Kevin Miller is going to continue and there's a lot more fascinating information that we're going to get from him in terms of not only the documentary and the production of the documentary, but how it, how it changes your life by asking the right kinds of questions. This documentary will be available uh, on DVD and, DVD and iTunes uh, May 28th. Uh, coming up next month, and it is, I've watched it several times, and it is something that I think no Christian household should be without. It is that powerful in terms of not drawing a conclusion, but asking the questions. So, uh, Kevin, stay with us through the break. Uh, it's going to be coming up in just a moment here. We really appreciate your, your input. All right. Um, so, folks, what do we know so far? What do we know so far? We know the Old Testament works exactly in line with all that Jesus did and taught. We know that the Old Testament images of death and judgment were varied, but all pointed to destruction. We know that there is no allusion to torture and torment in the Old Testament. So the big question is, okay, if that's the case, then where did the torture and torment idea come from? If it didn't come from the Old Testament, where did it come from? Well, in the second hour, we're going to look that question square in the eye and deal with it. For Jonathan and Rick and our special guest, Kevin Miller, this is Christian Questions. We will be back after the news and all of that. But till then, are most people really hellbound? We'll be back soon. Think about it. is Christian Questions. Mahatma Gandhi, again, we're quoting Mahatma Gandhi a few times here, says, even if you are a minority of one, the truth is the truth. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Christian Questions Talk Radio with a Purpose with Jonathan and Rick and our special guest, Kevin Miller. This isn't your typical Christian commentary. We love talking with our audience, and we promise to never talk at you like so many talk shows do today. This is a conversation about biblical topics as we look at them from a different perspective. And Jonathan, what is that topic this morning? It is a good one. Yes, it is, Rick. Our question is, are most people really hellbound? And our theme text comes from Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And, Jonathan, as we discuss this, we, again, we've got Kevin Miller on the line with us, uh, award-winning uh, documentary producer who uh, produced the documentary that was out this past year called Hellbound. Um, we're going to be getting back into that discussion in a moment. We have discovered, and folks, we apologize for this, we've discovered we're having some kind of an issue with our, our phone lines here. So, folks, we're going to give you another number to call. This is not a toll-free number, but certainly you can call in and join the conversation. The number is 860-444-7981. Again, this is not toll-free. We apologize for that. For we've got some kind of an issue. And we're going to repeat that number again, 860 444 7981. And uh, the reason we know we have an issue is somebody um, that we know called in, wanted to be a part of the program, and said, hey, how come I can't get through? 
So <laughs> we're glad that, that he called. We'll get to his call in a moment. Uh, but, uh, Kevin, we're getting back to you. You are on the line with us, right? Yes, I am. Okay, good. Just checking. Um, first of all, before we get back to, to the film and your experiences there, um, you have you mentioned you have a wife and, and, and children, right? Yes, I do. I, I have one wife and four children. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, old are, how old are your children? Uh, ages uh, 5, 8, 10, and 12. Wow. Or 11, 12, sorry. Yeah. So, so you're in that in that stage of lots of little ones running around having fun. Yeah, little ones and slowly turning into big ones. My son, uh, my 12-year-old speech just outgrew mine this past summer. So there you go. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's terrific. See, my kids are all grown up. I'm a grandfather, so... Uh, <laughs> You're in, a, in, in that great, great stage. Also, I just wanted to ask you just one other thing, a sidelight entirely that ha- has nothing to do with the film. But you had a role in the TV series, a small role in the TV series Smallville? Yeah, well, anybody watching this online will note the, uh, the light shining off my bald head. And uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I, I live uh, just outside of Vancouver where they were filming Smallville, and there just happened to be an open casting call to double uh, for uh, Lex Luthor. And... Uh, at the, and what ended up happening was they liked the match so much that they uh, phoned me up one day and said, we want to bump you up to actor status. And they sent me script pages, and uh, there I was suddenly playing Lex Luthor. So <laughs> what a ride. Uh, it was pretty cool because I also got to be covered in burn makeup, and at the uh, end of the episode, I got blown up. So, I mean, uh, what what better episode to play Lex Luthor? It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool. Anyway, uh, just a little bit more background on Kevin Miller, Miller for you folks. And, uh, again, folks, if you'd like to join our conversation, our number for this week only is not toll-free. It's 860-444-7981, 860-444-7981. And, uh, Jonathan, what we want to do to get started is, at the end of the last hour. We said, okay, the Old Testament doesn't give you the imagery of eternal torment and torture. No, it doesn't. So where does it come from? Because, you see, if it comes just from Jesus, then what we have to say is, well, then how? Then, then God didn't tell all of the people over the, the thousands of years of the Old Testament about it? Why wouldn't he have told them? Why would he have withheld such an important piece of, of, of teaching and truth? That's right. So where does it come from? I want to play just a short clip from a National Geographic special on Egyptian the Egyptian origins of Hellfire, and this will kick off our discussion for this next segment. By now, Seti has made it through the first and second gates. But as he approaches the third hour of his journey, he must reckon with a threat familiar to believers of many modern religions. The fires of damnation. For Seti, it's a test of purity. The lake of fire is this huge lake, um, which is made of fire. If you are one of the damned, then you are consumed by the fire. It's a challenge to every common man's soul. But because the Pharaoh is merged with the sun god, he has a unique role during this hour. And so so what we have there is the uh, sense of the uh, the history now a very dramatic sense I might add yes. from National Geographic there uh, of, of the history of the, the the concept of fire coming from ancient Egypt not from the Old Testament and long before Jesus you have this imagery of ancient Egypt and these burning fires these tormenting fires that's an interesting thought it is uh, we're going to go for, we're going to go to the phones in, in first but we're going to 
eventually go to Thomas Thayer, who uh, wrote an, uh, a book called Hellfire and Its Origin back in 1881. And he brings out some very interesting historical perspectives. That's where we're going next. But right now, Jonathan, let's go to the phones. All right. And we have Jeff from Illinois. Good morning, Jeff, and welcome to Christian Questions. Good morning. Hey. Hey, Kevin. I'd like to say thank you for uh, being on the show. I enjoyed meeting you when uh, we met in October during the filming or uh, the screening of your film here in Chicago. I have a couple okay. of questions. Uh, one is, uh, you didn't touch much on the immortal soul in the film. I was wondering why. Um, I, I like in the film how a lot of it had to do with attitude. How how do you hold your views, or how do you hold your views to those who have a, a different view than you do? Uh, I especially like the thought about the justice system, that, uh, you know, it's meant mostly to punish, but it should be to restore to make the, the people in the system better so that they can get out and uh, lead a productive life. But I'm also wondering, what do you say to those who say that, you know, we put ourselves in hell, or that why why question this? You know, God's ways are higher than our ways. And I'll hop off for anyone else who wants to get up. <laughs> Jeez. Just, why don't you just ask a few questions, Jeff? <laughs> and, Jeff, thanks so much for the, for the call. And i got to mention that uh, if it weren't for Jeff, uh, we wouldn't have Kevin because Jeff is the one who called me and said, hey, you've got you've to get this guy on your program. Yes, thank so, you, Jeff. Jeff, thanks so much. And, Kevin, uh, you can sort of pick and choose which, uh, which part of those questions you want to uh, address. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll address the first one. Uh, Jeff asked about the idea of an immortal soul. This is, this is one of the debates that, that goes on around the issue of hell is our are we inherently immortal, or is immortality a gift and um, that only is given to the righteous? So the wicked are deprived of immortality. That's really, you know, leads you to a view of some form of annihilation. Right. So it tends to be that those who believe in an immortal soul will will gravitate towards some form of, uh, I guess, uh, eternal torment or universalism, because these, these beings are going to exist forever. You've got to do something with them. Um, but that's not true of everyone, by the way. But I, I think that, by and large, most uh, you know a lot of Christians will agree that inherent immortality is not a so much a biblical idea as, as it is really uh, uh, maybe a Greek idea that's introduced later on. Uh, the other thing I wanted to address is um, a verse that's often invoked by people who um, are are defending a view of eternal torment is Isaiah. 55, 8, and 9, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. And so basically, if somebody comes up against the idea of eternal torment and has a difficult uh, time reconciling that with the idea of a loving God, people will say, well, God's ways are not our ways. But the interesting thing is, is that the context of that verse, if you read the couple verses before it, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the righteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And after that it says, For my, thought, my thoughts are not your thoughts. So the context in which we're being told to submit ourselves to the wisdom of God is in the face of his mercy to his enemies, not in the face of his um, uh, terrible wrath against his enemies. So it, it, it's it's interesting that that's that's the context of the verse. Um, the other thing I was going to say is I, I think that uh, Jeff brought up the idea of the justice system, and for me, <coughs> I actually used to work um, within the justice system uh, with young offenders, and and actually my educational background is in that. And I think even within our own justice system, 
there's various purposes of justice, such as retribution, deterrence, public protection, all that sort of thing. But I think that the highest purpose of our justice system is ultimately rehabilitation and reconciliation, so that, um, you know, we don't want to just, we don't want to have justice at the expense of, of society, and we don't have justice at, at the expense of the offender either. Hopefully we can, we can seek a form of justice that, that, um, that just simply reconciles. And that doesn't, you know, mean that, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Whatever you did wrong, we'll just, you know, we'll just forgive it. But ultimately the end game is to bring people together. And so we would look to God, I'd look to God and say, I, I have to believe that God's view of justice is even higher than that. And and I and I would absolutely agree with you on that context. And and if you listen, ever listen to Christian questions, that's I'm a fanatic about context. That's your favorite word, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, what's the context of the verse so that we can understand why it's spoken, to whom it's spoken, and what the true true lesson is. And and the context is that justice should be restorative wherever possible, and and accountability. God is a God of great great and deep accountability. Again, folks, if you have a thought, it's a, uh, our number this week is a little different. We're having a little bit of a challenge with our phone lines. It's 860-444-7981, 860-444-7981. And we have Kevin Miller with us, which is an award-winning screenwriter, director, and producer, and most recently, Hellbound is what he's, what he's just worked on. And let's, let's get into the history, because we've, we've alluded to it, and I'm not going to read this paragraph, because we only have a few minutes left in this segment, but uh, from Thomas Thayer, in his book, and this was written back in 1881, Hellfire and Its Origin, he talks about the Egyptian uh, mythology, the Egyptian mythology of fire and torment being adopted by the Greeks. And he gives a real strong sense of the words from the Egyptian mythology literally carried over to a very, very close interpretation by the Greeks. So the Greeks took what was there thousands of years before, adapted it. And now the question is, well, why would they do that? Why would they adapt such a thing? And, uh, Jonathan, I want to go down to just this one. There, there are several quotes. And, again, folks, you've got to sign up for Christian Questions. Seek your Rewind, the full edition, uh, because all of, this, all of this will be in print there. We don't have time to go through it. But Polybus, the historian, here's what he says. Since the multitude is ever fickle, full of lawless desires, irrational passions, and violence, there is, there is no other way to keep them in order but by fear and terror of the invisible world, on which account our ancestors seem to me to have acted judiciously when they contrived to bring into the popular belief these notions of the gods and of the infernal regions. So the, this historian, amongst many others, are quoted as saying that the Greeks put this idea in place to keep the people in order. Fear. Fear. That's right. Jonathan, uh, we don't have a lot of time for this segment, but let's go to the phones very quickly. We have Dan from Illinois. Yes. Welcome to the program, Dan. Hello. Yes, what I find interesting about this topic is that your fundamentalist Christian types, I, I think they believe God thinks just like they do. That's if, you know, you don't do it my way, I'm going to burn you in fire forever. I'm going to get even with you. And I think it's absurd, but a scripture that comes to my mind uh, is in the book of Jeremiah, uh, 19, verse 5. The Jews were punished for, for making human sacrifices to Baal. They were actually burning their children in fire. Right. And this is what God's words, words to them were. They have built also the, to the high, high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, 
which I commanded not nor spake, neither came it into my mind. But burning and torturing someone in fire never even came into God's mind. And I just want to know your thoughts on this scripture. Actually, Dan, I'm glad you brought that up. We actually are planning on discussing that scripture in detail uh, in a couple of segments from now. So we're not going to answer you right now, but I promise you we're going to get to it in detail. How's that? Great. Thank you. All right, Dan, thanks for, so much for the call. We appreciate it. Take care. All right, so Kevin, um, we're about out of time, so just limit your comments to about 30 seconds. But when you look at history, and you look at uh, the Egyptian thought, and then the Greek mythology, and putting it all together, what, what jumps out at you from that? Well, I'll just say I'm reading a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel right now by Jared Diamond, and he talks about the power of cultural diffusion. So something like language, for instance, it only was independently created in a, a few spots on the earth and then um, it's or like written language and then it's spread all over the place and I think the same thing is true of, of all sorts of ideas is that they are they, they diffuse and they change form um, as they travel from culture to culture and so I think that we're seeing evidence of this um, in you know the development of the idea of hell so and that's the important thing we're seeing that today as we saw it way back then so you have a you have a, a, a definite source for the thought of eternal fire and torment. And, but the source, the original source, is not scriptural, it's not the Old Testament, and it's not, the original source is not Jesus, it is the Egyptian thinking and Greek mythology, which is admittedly made up. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest, Kevin Miller. Our subject, Are Most People Really Hellbound? Next, when did hell creep into Jewish thinking? Before or after Jesus? The answer coming up. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick, and we're so happy to have our guest Kevin Miller with us which is an award-winning screenwriter, director, and producer, and we're speaking about uh, his latest on uh, Hellbound. Now, if you have a thought and you want to give us a call, we have a new number today. Today only. That's right. It's not toll-free. We apologize for that. And that number is 860-444-7981. I'm going to give that to you again, 860-444-7981. Also, go to our website, christianquestions.com. And you can listen live to our program the second hour. You can go to CQ Rewind and get everything we're talking about here and the things we don't have time to talk about. Which is plenty. On print so that you can follow the reasoning um, for, from the program. Again, go to ChristianQuestions.com. All right, and we've got Kevin Miller with us. And we're talking about now, we're looking at the history of the concept of eternal fire and torment and it really is historically a provable fact that this began with ancient Egyptian thinking and was very much clearly adopted uh, through Greek thinking, but the Greeks used it, and we have several quotes. We only used one, but we have several quotes oh, yeah. showing us that the Greek thinking uh, adopted that as a way to control the people, not as a truth. Using it as fear. Right, as a way to control the people. So, so you're getting a different sense of things because we're looking at the actual unfolding of history. Before we get back to how did the Jewish thinking uh, get involved in this, Jonathan, we have a call. Let's go to the call first. All right, we have Tracy from Tennessee. Good morning, Tracy, and welcome to Christian questions My call. okay Tracy you're, you're breaking up a little bit try to start again uh, can you hear me now yes 
Okay. Thank you for your show. I listen every Sunday. Um, I suffer from severe bipolarism. Okay. And people out there I know, you know, with mental illness, um, I have trouble sometimes grasping the intellectual side. Mm -hmm. I read my Bible every day. It just got your heart because it, you know, it, it's where you're, you're, where, um, where it lies. And is there a place in with God and in heaven for us that who can't intellectually grasp everything, um, but we are very strong in that in in our faith. Okay, Tracy. Tracy, good. Um, listen, you were breaking up a little bit. I know what your question is. I apologize. I'm I, just. It's hard to understand you, but I talked to the screener during the break, so I know exactly what you're asking. Um, your connection's just not good enough to keep you on, but we're going to answer that question right now. Thank you for calling, Tracy. Okay, and and so Tracy's question is okay. She suffers from severe bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. and she says, you know, sometimes you can't trust your heart, and but sometimes she she's she reads her Bible every day, but she just can't grasp what she's reading and where is there a place for her that, that that's the question and that is an incredibly important question it is Rick. because we look we're, we're from a we're, we're from a, a sin sick society we're all broken down and this is a broken down circumstance it's not her fault we're all imperfect right. we have weaknesses in all different areas and and uh, you know the resounding answer is uh, god god is a god of love and justice and mercy and what we've been talking about jonathan is that theme that god's justice is is carried out but we're responsible for the things that we know and the things that we do but we're not responsible for things that we can't control so god makes up for those things and yes there is a place and there's nothing to be fearful about uh, in terms of god's judgment upon you especially when you suffer from a, such a difficult uh, uh circumstances as tracy does so tracy thanks so much for the call we appreciate it take heart keep reading your bible and absorb what you can and thank god for his love and his mercy so kevin let's get back down to to history and take a a, a look at Okay, we've got the Greek thinking that came in as a way to keep people in, in, in check, so to speak. When, from your study and, and understanding, when did, historically, did the Jewish thinking get exposed to such things, and what was the result? Well, I, I think the Jewish people, like all people, are um, living amongst all sorts of different cultures, and that's definitely made clear throughout the Old Testament that they're constantly adopting ideas from other cultures. This is something that they're they're getting into trouble for throughout the Old Testament period, and um, specifically when they're hauled away into Babylonian captivity as well. They're now you know living. They're they're taken away from their familiar environment and they're living amongst a, uh, a foreign people. So it's only natural that some of these ideas are going to diffuse within the Jewish people as well. And you know we see the same thing happening today where you have whole branches of Christianity which have really taken the idea of modernism and they've built their theology on it. And now you're seeing people doing the same thing with postmodernism. And so it's just natural that, that you're going to take theological ideas and somehow graft them onto the, uh, the culture that you're in. But I'll say that also, you know, by the time of Christ, really, if you did a poll amongst the various Jewish groups of the day and asked them what happens to, to the wicked after they die, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Right. Um, and uh, depending on which religious group you're talking to, if you're talking to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the Zealots, to the Essenes, I mean, there there is no really, um, you know, uh, vanilla version um, of, of what people were thinking at the time. This is one of the issues. Um, Jesus does latch on to this term Gehenna, which we're going to talk about, um, but 
he didn't originate that idea. I think right. what he's really doing is appropriating language and ideas um, that were, you know, relevant uh, in the culture of his day. All right, and and you, you said you said a mouthful, <laughs> and and the important thing is that there there was this this uh, this this migration of thinking that came into Jewish thinking, and a lot of it came before Christ. Again, from the book from Thomas Thayer, in chapter uh, 4 of his book, The Jews Borrowed the Doctrine from the Heathen. Uh, just one quick paragraph, Jonathan, I think it's, it's, it's uh, clear. It says, The process is easily understood. About 330 years before Christ, Alexander the Great has subjected his rule to the whole Western Asia, including Judea, and also the Kingdom of Egypt. Soon after, he founded Alexandria, which speedily became a great commercial metropolis and drew itself into itself a large multitude of Jews who were always eager to improve their opportunities of traffic and trade. So you have the, the, the desire to succeed in the world. Sure, sure. Okay? A few years later, Ptolemy Soter took Jerusalem and carried off 100,000 of them to Egypt. Here, of course, they were in daily contact with Egyptians and Greeks and gradually began to adopt their philosophical and religious opinions or to modify their own harmony with them. And, Kevin, that's exactly what you were saying. And here's the thing, folks. When you understand that the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, Mm-hmm. There is a 400-year period where there is not a prophet on the scene. That's a lot of time. Right. And during that 400-year period is what that particular paragraph is talking about. Oh, wow. So it puts the perspective that during that 400-year period where God does not have a prophet on the scene, you have a grand opportunity for um, delusion to enter into the Jewish mind. And it did. And it did. And, Kevin, in your documentary, you really nailed that down very well. You had several uh, individuals talking about uh, the, uh, the, the way their thinking changed. Yeah, and this, this is what people typically call the intertestamental period. I mean, it's, it's not as if we don't have writings from that time period. In fact, we have a, a whole number of writings. But this is where you start to see um, a lot of these ideas develop. Okay. And, you know, and going from really, I don't think something we've addressed is is in the Old Testament itself, you're not seeing a well-developed view of the afterlife at all. I mean, um, what people will pull at is, is a couple of scriptures late in the, that come late in, in that time period that seem to hint at some sort of um, speculation about the afterlife, but there's no real systematic theology of it showing up in the Old Testament. Right, right. We've got images, but there's no specifics. What we do know is that there is there is a God of justice and judgment. We know that from the Old Testament. Yes. The question is, how is that carried out? And that's really what the New Testament, I think, clear, clarifies for us. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is, folks, we're not going to be talking about the New Testament today. <laughs> Who has time? <laughs> and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to revisit the subject in several weeks. We're going to have Kevin come back with us and spend that next program entirely on the New Testament approach and perspective on the matter. So um, that's what we are sort of our, our direction. Um, now, I'm not... I, I think I know who that is. Um, okay, right. there's, no, there's no names up there, so just find out what we've got going on. I, I got it. It's Randall from Connecticut. Why don't we take uh, Randall's call? Okay. Good morning. Happy Sunday, guys. Good morning, Randall. Nice to meet you, Kevin. Thanks. We have Galatians 3.25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a disciplinarian. Consider the idea that God does not damn anyone to hell. Jesus took on flesh to lead humans to fullness of life, rich in this existence, and complete in the kingdom. Galatians 5.22. In contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, kindness, generosity. Against such, there is no law. God has given us freedom. 
if we do not use that freedom to embrace Jesus and his law of love, we reject our neighbor, our God, and our very own life in him. Hell is the choice of unlife. Matthew twenty-five forty-five forty-six. What you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All right, Randall, thanks so much. We appreciate it. God bless you guys. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a perhaps a, a different perspective there, but that's good. You know, the whole point is to, to put the perspectives uh, on the table so we can talk about them in, a, in an orderly and mature fashion. So, uh, Randall, thanks so much. And, you know, the idea of eternal punishment, I, let, let's touch on Daniel 12, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 63, 23 and 24, because these two scriptures, Jonathan, are, in, in watching the documentary, these yeah. are the scriptures that continually seem to come out from the, those folks that say, okay, you know, hell is taught in the Old Testament, and here's, here's where you can find its, its source. So we want to touch on those right now, and we'll, we'll bridge into the next segment with them. Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation, until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So it talks about, okay, they will awake to uh, life, everlasting contempt. And you think, okay, you've got a source for something. What does that mean? How does that work? And we're actually going to spend a lot more time on that in our, next, in our next program on this. But we do want to touch on it now because we don't want to like just leave it. Leave it. <laughs> so... In order to be able to come on, on that scripture, though, Jonathan, you have to go to the Isaiah scripture because the two actually work together very, very well. Isaiah chapter 66, 23 and 24. And folks, listen, if you're going to write down one scripture, if you're going to remember one text from this whole program, write this one down because I think this is a real key to understanding this whole uh, doctrine and this whole teaching of what the Bible really says. It shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So it says they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Well, what is the abhorrence to all mankind? And, and Kevin, what is this specific scripture talking about? Well, what we're seeing are, are the corpses, you know, the slain enemies of God, and, and they're, in a sense, the corpses, uh, the, the death of them is going to act as a, I guess, sort of a deterrence, um, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I, mean, I think what we're seeing here, though, is we're seeing a, a temporal judgment, which is what you're seeing throughout the Old Testament, is something that happens within time on this earth. There's no sense here that um, I mean, it, I mean, we do say that, that the worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, but um, it, again, I don't see this really as speculation about the afterlife. This seems to be something that is stated, again, within a very poetic um, sort of language that's talking about a judgment here and now. And we're actually going to get into that in much more detail in the next segment, because this is really focusing on uh, a literal place on Earth. On, or not under the earth, but on earth. That's what Isaiah 66, 23, and 24 is focusing on. A literal place on planet earth. 
And Jesus, and again, we're not going to be able to get into it in great, great detail, but Jesus takes that imagery and uses it in his teaching. But the key to understanding this is to understand how is that literal, literal, pla- literal place being described, what is its most important key, and what is it teaching us about the justice and the judgment of God himself upon mankind. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest, Kevin Miller, and our subject, Are Most People Really Hellbound? Next, coming up, since so many Christians believe in a place of torment, what is Hellfire's New Testament basis? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. Welcome back. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Our subject this morning, are most people really hellbound? We have our special guest, Kevin Miller, which is an award-winning screenwriter, director, and producer. And he recently did um, this documentary, and we are very thankful he is with us. Now, today we have a different phone number to call because of uh, some challenges with our phone lines. This is not toll-free. The number, 860-444-7981. Again, that's 860-444-7981. And that's for this week only, Jonathan, that that other number. But, um, Kevin, as we uh, move forward with this, we're looking now, uh, we're going to be looking at the New Testament foundation for what is interpreted as hellfire or not, depending on your point of view. Before we get into that, though, Jonathan, why don't we just go to the phones, and then we'll come right back to Kevin. All right, we have Andrew from Illinois. Good morning, Andrew, and welcome to Christian Questions. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Okay. Um, I've seen Hellbound. I want to say, Kevin, you've you've done a spectacular job, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, I did notice that the movie has a tendency to lean a little to uh, universalism, which is, you know, which is fine. Um, so when I contrast universalism with Calvinism, I see them on uh, opposite sides of the spectrum with one commonality, that the individual may not or doesn't have much of a choice in light of God's will. Uh, and I understand that. Um, I do think that when God's will for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth is stated that um, it's a supreme wish, maybe, um, but that he wouldn't interfere with our choice in the matter. So when I envision, and I, I'll try to be short, I promise, uh, I envision God's will in the manner by which I conduct myself as a father or a husband, let's say. So by this rationale, my sanctification process as a Christian um, might demand that I'm in a uh, constant state of embedment. So as a mature Christian, I should not only be able to see that God's ways are higher than mine, thank you for pointing that out earlier, in regards to mercy and justice and righteousness, but that I may need to strive towards this higher way. So in this fashion, don't I have some free will to follow Jesus and ultimately God's way if I've expanded my understanding to do so? Now, one last thing, if Ray Comfort is acting out of his convictions as a hellfire believer, which I'm not, okay, um, I'm not a hellfire believer at all, and this would somewhat denote that he has a choice to do so, don't we potentially uh, do the same in our search for God? In terms of the, the, the way he approaches it, you mean? Um, in terms of our ability to choose a higher way of life, as opposed to maybe not having an opportunity to, you know, I, am I going to be pursued forever until 
God redeems me. Oh, or, okay. I see what you're saying. You know, so, so you're asking yeah. really a question directly related to universalism. All right, Andrew, we got to keep yeah. moving here. Really sure. re- appreciate your thoughts and your call. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Thank you. Uh-huh. So, so, Kevin, his question really is focused on, well, from a universalistic standpoint, is there... Um, does universalism, universalism step on the toes of that free will, so to speak? I think that's kind of the core of what he was asking. Any, any well, quick, quick thoughts? Yeah, one of the things to understand about universalism is there's many different forms of it. Um, and I, I will say that a lot of the universalists I spoke to uh, kind of became Calvinists for a very short time on the way to becoming universalists because they keyed in on something that Andrew mentioned, is that there's a commonality in terms of the role that God's sovereignty plays versus our own will. And I, I wrote a series of blog posts a while back called Storming the Four Fortresses of Hell, and, and one of the key fortresses for me is this idea of free will, in that um, depending on how you conceive of, of the human will, that will have a huge effect on how you conceive of hell. Personally, um, I've come to um, see that I think one of the things we confuse is um, ability with freedom. So just because we're, we're able to do something doesn't mean that uh, the choice that we're making in that moment is free. And I think that, for me, this is really one of the things that Christ is coming to do, is to free our will, not condemn us for abusing that freedom, because I think this is one of the things that Jesus, one of the primary metaphors that we're seeing throughout Scripture is, is that we're in bondage. We're in bondage to illusions, we're in bondage to self-destruction and self uh, you know, self-deception, and this is really the thing that God is is, is trying to liberate us from. All so, right. yeah, we I, have a will, but how free is it really? Okay, and I don't mean to cut you off, but we gotta we gotta keep uh, keep moving forward here. So, the good answer, and I think that puts things in perspective. The idea that we are in an imperfect state now and need to be reconciled further, and that's the this, the truly the the meaning of the sacrifice of Jesus ultimately is for that purpose. Um, Want to just touch on a, a basic point, not get into a discussion on it, and then we got to get into this Gehenna thing for the balance of our time. But the basic point is this, and again, Kevin, I drew this from your, your documentary. One of the, the folks that you interviewed was talking about the idea that you need to really see the context in which Jesus was teaching and the context in which he was uh, developing what we look at as gospel truth. And his point was a lot of what Jesus said had to do with then, right then and there, in terms of their lives. And I think that there's a great deal of truth in that. I think some of the things that Jesus taught had dual meanings, a meaning for then and a meaning for later, uh, from a prophetic standpoint. But and we won't read the verse, but in Matthew 24, this is Jesus' great prophecy. They ask him, when shall these things be? What things? Well, he was talking about the temple and its destruction. That's right. And so when is this going to happen? And so Jesus, in the beginning of his answer in Matthew chapter 24, before he actually talks about his actual return, discusses and describes the scene of the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And that happened just, you know, 30 some odd years later. A.D. 70. Right. So he was showing them a right now fulfillment, but then he said, but this is not the end yet. And then he goes on. So it says, it looks like the end of the world. But it really isn't. Then he goes on and describes, uh, you know, his his return and so forth. So that being said, let's go. Let's move on to the discussion of Gehenna. What Gehenna is, where it is, and how it functioned, especially from an Old Testament perspective. Because once we focus on that from an Old Testament perspective, we can then therefore get the context to apply it to the New Testament. 
So, uh, actually, before we do that, though, Jonathan, let's one more time go to the phones. All right, we have Keith from Tennessee. Good morning, Keith, and welcome to Christian Questions. Well, good morning. I won't get to Revelation 9, 18, 10, 10, and 18, 4 today, but anyway, with respect to <clears throat> hell, uh, there's a, a retired uh, obstetrician named Dr. Richard Eby, <clears throat> and he's written several books, one of which I read, but basically, uh, uh, he, the second experience was at the tomb of Lazarus, where uh, God took him up to heaven and, and asked him if he'd allow him to take his name out of the land for life for two minutes. Then he showed him hell. And uh, basically there are two places. There's like an arraignment for at least a thousand years where you await hell, whether there are demons, foul odors, um, and, and um, noises and that kind of thing, thirst and loneliness. And then uh, there's a galaxy-sized um, lake of fire, which hasn't been used yet. Um, but um, souls will be cast into it. And my understanding is they lose consciousness. But if you go to heaven, you're conscious forever in a wonderful place. But hell, apparently, you eventually annihilated your soul, and you lose consciousness. But you might want to communicate with him, and he's written several books about this. All right, Keith, we appreciate the input. Thanks so much. God bless. You too. And, and, you know, let me let me make a comment on, on, on that kind of a thing as we get into the Gehenna part of this. Uh, and, and that is, and again, I'm going to refer back to the program, the three-part program we did on Should I Not Be a Christian? Right. And the when we begin to put more of the basis of our belief on our own personal experience rather than the written word of God, we, we start to get into trouble. We do. Because our personal experience obviously is tailored to the kind of person we are, the context in which we live, and so forth, whereas the Bible is tailored over thousands of years of putting uh, several writers together and giving you a consistent plan from beginning to end. And I would just draw caution to say that, okay, when you have an experience and you've been shown hell, that's your personal experience. Does that personal experience, however dramatic it might be, does it have consistency with the written word of God or not. And if it doesn't, then we have to ask ourselves about that personal experience. That's, that's, that's all we'll say about that. But Keith, thanks so much for the call. We appreciate that uh, very much. So, uh, Kevin, in your documentary, um, and this is about halfway through, and frankly, we're only discussing the first half of the documentary because it was so full of so much good stuff. Again, folks, this documentary will be released on DVD May 28th. It'll be on iTunes. I truly believe, I've watched it several times, that this is something that should be in every Christian household because it asks important, important questions. And it's called Hellbound. Hellbound with a question mark. Yes. And uh, you can look, look it up online. There's a lot of information there, but it is coming out uh, next month. But, Kevin, in that documentary, you talked to uh, some individuals about this, uh, this place uh, that was called Gehenna. T- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we speak to some people because uh, basically the word that Jesus uses exclusively in the Gospels to describe, um, you know, the fate of the wicked is Gehenna. So where does this idea come from? What does this word mean? And and what we talk about is how Gehenna is one of, uh, you know, many words, many names for a valley outside of Jerusalem, which has a has a rich history, and it's, it's a dark history that goes back to, uh, as we've referenced a little bit with Jeremiah, where... Um, things are going on in, in the Valley of Gehenna or uh, Topeth or the va- Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, um, child sacrifice and that sort of thing. So back in the time of Jeremiah, he's he's warning the Israelites that if these practices don't come to an end, it's going to lead to the destruction uh, of the people, and that's exactly what, what ended up happening. And so Jesus is really 
in many ways, is continuing the prophetic tradition of Jeremiah. Um, and he's again warning um, the Jews that um, if they continue down their path of violence, they're going to meet a similar fate. Now, the thing I, I want to mention is just because Jesus is referencing a literal place doesn't therefore mean that um, he's not referring to something in the afterlife. I mean, you, right. you can't just make that that uh, judgment call, but it is important to know that, that he is speaking about something that's really rooted in their current context. And so, as you say, that he, he seems to be at some point at least prophesying a, a very local destruction. Um, and you could then say he's also referencing something that's more eternal, but but that's really where the discussion lies. Right, and, and, and I will add to that by saying he is discussing something more eternal, but he's doing it in a way that those who are listening can actually understand him. And that's why he chooses this Valley of Hinnom, uh, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And th- the references are Jeremiah 19, 3-6, and Jeremiah 7, 30-33. We won't read them, we don't have time. But it gives you a sense of the importance of what happened in those valleys, and they became a garbage pit. That Valley of the Sons of Hinnom became a garbage pit in which to throw refuse, in which they kept fires burning, so everything thrown in would be completely, utterly destroyed. And nothing was alive that was thrown into that. No, and that's the point. There was nothing alive, nothing tortured. Everything was dead, thrown there to be consumed. And for our listeners, you need to go to ChristianQuestions.com and check out this program in full, full text at CQ Rewind. Sign up for the free edition. It gives you everything we don't have time to cover. Uh, go to ChristianQuestions.com uh, to listen to everything that's been presented. Okay, and, and Kevin, we're just about out of time. Just any final thoughts for this program uh, until we get back with you next month? Yeah, I was just going to build on the Gehenna thing just to say that I think if Jesus were around today, maybe an analogy he would use would be ground zero. And, and, and what that's become for us is, is um, you know, the, the, the place of ultimate destruction. And so that's, I, I think, a, a similar, you know, type of analogy. But I, I think that, you know, the, the really key thing is, is to think about all of these ideas, as we've discussed, are developing within uh, an historical and cultural context. And so you're seeing a development of ideas throughout the Bible, no different than um, we see development of theology today. So uh, as my friend Ron Dark, who appears in the film, says, every reading reveals some things and conceals others. And I think one of the issues that we keep running into, all of us, no matter what our belief on this issue is, is we fall so in love with what our perspective is revealing that we forget what it might be concealing. And so it's important to always be listening to what other people are saying, even if we kind of on a gut level disagree with this. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today. We truly, truly appreciate your input. Great, thank you very much. All right, folks, as we wrap this up, understand this is a big subject. It's a very controversial subject. We put it on the table for discussion. Email us at rick, R-A-C-K, at christianquestions.net, rick at christianquestions.net. Let us know what you think. Put your comments on on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you there. The point is, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it in a non-judgmental way so that we can communicate what we all truly believe the Scriptures mean. Whether we agree with each other or not is not the issue. The issue is, let's talk about the scriptures. For Jonathan Rick and Kevin Miller, it's Christian Questions. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, are most people really hellbound? We'll be back next week. Think about it.